0: Ascendant Health and Politics, a show about the day's emerging public health issues and the intersection of politics. Your hosts are Kyle McGowan and Amanda Campbell. Well, we're in the midst of the holiday season, and it's almost two weeks after Thanksgiving. As you know, Americans were told that they should avoid travel for Thanksgiving by the CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, the Thursday before Thanksgiving. And other guidance for Thanksgiving by the CDC included having guests bring their own food, drinks, plates, and utensils, offering disposable food containers, avoid congregating in the kitchen, things like that.
1: So obviously, everyone listened to the CDC, and everything is great and wonderful, and we are on
0: the downslope, right? Um, Not so much. Um, The days right around Thanksgiving ended up being the busiest for air travel since the start of the pandemic, actually, according to figures from the Transportation Security Administration. Uh, The agency actually screened nearly 4.6 million passengers between November 25th, to the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, through the end of that weekend on November 29th. Now, considering that we're still in the middle of pandemic, numbers were obviously still lower than they were last year at this time, but it was still the highest that we've seen since the start of the pandemic. And that's after the CDC made a plea to the country to actually limit their travel so that, that we could begin, as as you just mentioned, to help mitigate the spread.
1: So, uh, because everyone's hard headed and have uh, clearly have trouble listening to experts at the the, the CDC and, and public health experts um, in the past uh, tw- uh, the past 14 days actually we've seen a 16 percent increase in cases a 47 percent increase in deaths on December 7th we had 202,000 new cases in a single day we had 1,522 new deaths in a single day And 102 hospitalizations, new hospitalizations in a single day.
0: 102,000.
1: 102,000, yes. Yeah. New hospitalizations in a single day. And, you know, if if people do the exact same thing over the Christmas holiday that they just did for Thanksgiving, the middle of January is going to look the exact same as it does right now with 1,500 people dying a day and, you know, 200,000 people getting new infections in a single day. I mean, just to put that into to perspective, I mean, we're talking roughly a million new cases a week right now. That, that is just crazy, all because people are hard-headed.
0: So, but why is it so hard to follow the recommendations of the CDC and public health professionals? Professionals
1: well, you know, I mean, I think it's a number of things, right? I mean, I, um, you know, the, the number one thing here recently is folks at the, the, the CDC haven't actually been allowed to to talk. <laughs> well, <that's
0: laughs> you know, they true. they
1: haven't been out in the public telling the American people what they need to be doing.
0: But I mean, these numbers are staggering. And yet we have a huge segment of the population. Now, granted, there's a, a large population that do follow the requests of these scientists, which are to stay home to you know, limit your interaction with folks. Wear a mask, social distance, all those things. But then we have a another large portion of the population that refuses to do any of those things. Yeah,
1: and I and I think you know leadership is important in this case. And I think uh, having uh, the president of the United States say wear a mask, stay at home when you can, and and do that by example in wearing a mask would be extremely beneficial if that had been done, say in February. Um, that's just not the case. Um, you know, a lot of folks need and want to hear from our leadership and having the president of the United States wear a mask and say, I'm wearing a mask and it's important you do as well, would have been helpful. Uh, very helpful, actually never happened. You know, another thing that was extremely frustrating for public health officials. Um, and I know we, we lived it as well is to have someone like Scott Atlas, who is, A doctor, but not an infectious disease doctor, stand at the White House podium, which is a bully pulpit. I mean, you have the ability to capture an audience. People have to report on what you're saying when you're standing there. And you're standing in a position of power and leadership. And he says crazy things like you don't necessarily need to wear a mask and herd immunity is going to save us all. And so we all just kind of need to get the coronavirus, get COVID-19, and we'll all be happy.
0: Yeah, that's not what experts at the CDC said.
1: No, absolutely not.
0: And quite the abuse of uh, that power and that position he was put in.
1: It was extremely unhelpful.
0: Um, You know, it was interesting, about a week or so ago, I read... A con- An article from the Washington Post that said perhaps the most obvious lesson throughout all this has been that public health messaging needs to be retooled as whole swaths of the country are simply tuning out the warnings from officials and experts. But do you agree with that? Well,
1: yeah. I mean, look, you can always message better. But the first step into uh, being able to message better is being to actually talk and being able to talk to the American people, um, and and that just hasn't been allowed um, there there since I guess really February, middle of February, the CDC hasn't been able to give its monthly telebriefings, or actually weekly telebriefings that it had been doing uh, in other uh, outbreaks prior. Um, some of you may remember uh, Dr. Messinier. Uh, kind of stepped in it a little bit, or was perceived to have stepped in it with a quote that she gave um, uh, early on in February, and, you know, I'm going to read a a, a portion of that. So this is Dr. Messinier from February 25th. As more and more countries experience community spread, successful containment in our borders become harder and harder. She goes on to say, it's not a question of if this will happen, but when this will happen and how many people in this country will have severe illness. She went on again to say, disruption to everyday life might be severe. After saying that, the CDC was not allowed to do these telebriefings anymore.
0: But that was the truth, right? Right.
1: It's the truth. So because Dr. Messinier went out, and, and, and told the American people that their daily lives may change and we need to prepare for that. Um, public health officials were sidelined and, and no longer allowed to talk directly to the American people and to the press. And, 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 and this is frustrating because, you know, I, I am a firm believer and if you're going to get blamed for something, uh, that's fine. But when you get blamed for having poor messaging but not being allowed to actually message Well, you know, that's not quite fair.
0: I agree. And I think we forgot to mention that Nancy Messonnier is the head of the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases at CDC, um, which basically means that she does everything related to and is the leader and head of everything related to flu, traditionally, but also COVID-19. So she's an
1: actual infectious disease doctor.
0: That's right, Kyle. She is. Right. Um, and, you know, there are some promising signs. I actually saw last week that she tweeted for the first time since March 30th of this year's. And um, and yesterday, actually, I saw some comments from her at the Aspen Institute, um, which were the first that I've seen publicly uh, that she's been able to make since that February 25th telebriefing that you just mentioned. So I think that Folks at CDC are beginning to have an opportunity to speak out once again. Um, We saw CDC do a telebriefing, I think, back in November. um, And Henry Walk, who's the incident manager for the response right now, had some good comments. That's when he gave the warning to Americans to actually stay at home uh, before Thanksgiving. So I think all these signs are are encouraging and something that we should see as a movement in the right direction. Um, and, And not only that, but there's we actually are beginning to see some real significant progress on the vaccine, actually.
1: Yeah, that's right. So remind me, uh, let's get a little bit more in depth on the next steps for the vaccine.
0: Yeah, so actually over the Thanksgiving weekend, ACIP, which is the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, announced an emergency meeting to discuss and vote on what phase one A, as they're calling it, of the COVID nineteen vaccine allocation would look like, and they met the following week on December first, and it yeah. started to and actually voted.
1: Yeah, for... so uh, let's get a little bit more on what is ACIP. I mean, you, you, you said it's the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, but but who is it?
0: Yeah, that's actually a really good question because. You know, a lot of news outlets will say that these are CDC's recommendations. But ACIP, as most people refer to it, is actually just an expert panel of outside um, experts from a variety of different backgrounds that advise the CDC on vaccine recommendations. So the panel consists of 15 15- individuals who, uh, 14 of which, have expertise in a variety of clinical and scientific backgrounds. And then they have one member who is a representative or voice of that can talk about social and community aspects of vaccination. And the, these are rotating members. They don't serve, you know, lifetime um, roles in these seats or anything like that. They've served for a set period of time and then roll off and then new folks are nominated. And they're found based on, again, that clinical or scientific experience to provide a balance across the um, across the panel as they're making these recommendations. And they meet typically three times a year, but have obviously been trying to meet a lot more now that COVID um, and a vaccine has been you know, discovered and and we're working through what those recommendations are going to look like, but all their meetings are open to the public. They are available online via webcast, and they even include a period of time for public comments. So, they have done I think an incredible job of doing everything they can to be transparent in how they're making decisions.
1: So, just to get a little finer on this, it is a group of actual infectious disease docs. Having a meeting that is open to the public to talk about the risks of the vaccine, the rewards of the vaccine, and an open forum with actual experts in their field.
0: So they're not all infectious disease experts. Right. I want to make that point. Okay. But they are, for, as I mentioned, 14 of them all have some type of medical or scientific background, whether they're, they do research on vaccines or they're pediatricians um, that work with children. And because remember, most of the time we're giving vaccines to children. Right. Um, that's really the, been the bulk of their work for a long time now. Um, but again, they're all, they all have in some way <laughs> touched um, you know that vaccine.
1: They're experts in, in vaccines.
0: That's right. That's right. Right. I think that's fair to say. Um, So, you know, they, they have done a great job of making sure that the American public has access to all the information they have access to. Because they want to instill confidence in the American people and not only the process, but the decision-making that's happening now. And so anyways, during these meetings, they'll go over findings, um, discuss vaccine research and scientific data, vaccine effectiveness and safety, all those types of things. And then they will actually have a voting session um, in some of their meetings like they did on December 2nd. And they'll allow each member of the panel to have time to discuss what it is they're voting on and how... They came to their reasoning or rationale for that vote.
1: So what actually did they vote on?
0: So they voted on who was going to be getting the vaccine in this first tranche that's going to be available here pretty shortly. Um, so this has been under discussion for a long time, though. It's it's not like they just came to this decision um, on, this, on December 2nd. Um, the CDC actually put out, an interim playbook for COVID-19 vaccination a number of months ago. And most recently, it was updated in October of this year. But they broke down the various categories of of our population, and who should be getting vaccine based on prioritization. And so in that playbook, they actually said that phase 1A needed to include healthcare workers. And then beyond that, in phase 1B, it would include essential workers, people at high risk for severe COVID illness due to their underlying medical conditions, and people over 65, because that's where we've seen the greatest.
1: But the essential workers is kind of a broad term. Have we we determined... Um, what categories of people fall into essential workers or is that a future debate?
0: That's going to be part of the debate later on. Okay. There's actually another government entity that determines who essential workers are um, that I would assume that depending on the availability of vaccine, ACIP is going to have to break down that category even more just depending on the numbers and what they look like. Sure. Because as you said, that's, that's a lot of people. There are about over 20 million healthcare workers in the country. Um, and so it made sense to include all of them in this first category, because it looks like we're going to have around 40 million doses of vaccine available between the Pfizer vaccine and Moderna's vaccine. Um, so when you cut that in half, because remember, it's a two dose vaccine, that's right. 20 million doses. Um, there, there's, There's still some prioritization there, though, because that doesn't, include all long-term care residents, um, which is actually the recommendation that um, the ACIP approved, which was to prioritize in phase 1a, both healthcare personnel and residents of long-term care facilities, because that's where we've seen the greatest um, need, greatest need related to not only infection rates, but then um, their poor outcomes. We've had significant number of deaths in nursing homes, unfortunately. And so we really want to be sure that we're protecting that population. Um, But, you know, a lot of folks were surprised that they called this meeting because we were expecting that conversation to happen a little later on. But given how quickly things were moving with both Pfizer and Moderna's uh, emergency youth authorization, request through the FDA, ACIP wanted to be sure that they had their recommendations out ahead of any vaccine actually being approved.
1: Great. Well, I mean, so now we know roughly who's getting the first doses of of vaccine, but I mean, when when are we going to get it?
0: Well, it honestly could be as early as next week, uh, which is pretty amazing. And I think even just a few short months ago, we wouldn't have known for sure when we were going to be getting vaccine, if it was going to be this year at all. But I think it's looking more and more likely. Yeah,
1: I I remember, you know, when we were at the CDC and we had folks asking us when when a vaccine was going to be available, and people were throwing around this idea that we would have vaccine uh, in six to eight months, meaning end of 2020, um, you know, you don't ever in a position of leadership or, uh, you know, in public health, you, you don't want to lie to people and you don't want to over promise and under deliver. Uh, but this idea that, that these companies were going to be able to to develop a uh, effective vaccine in that amount of time was really kind of, I think it's, it's difficult to understand how of a big deal that is to have vaccines that will be heading out the door in the next week and actually in people's arms by the end of the year mm-hmm. is is pretty awesome.
0: Yeah. So all of that is actually going to be contingent by a meeting that happens later this week. Um, the outside vaccine uh, panel for FDA is it going to be reviewing the um, sort of final documentation, if you will, of the Pfizer vaccine, and they announced today, they actually uploaded those those briefing documents, made them public ahead of the meeting, and said that the vaccine does meet the prescribed success criteria, um, and had some, some more good news to share, actually, that, um, in fact, reduction of, um, you know, risk to severe COVID-19 after the first dose was roughly 88% or they saw roughly 88% efficacy in just the initial weeks after. So that's great news because that means that, you know, um, there's going to be a three-week period between that first and second dose um, at a minimum. And to know that people are going to have some protection from COVID during that time, um, especially as we're seeing, as we discussed earlier, these spikes in cases, and we're heading into the Christmas holiday now, that is those are all all good signs and, and all good news that we should um you know be be positive about um yeah you
1: know, eighty eight is really good, but get your second <laughs> dose, please people, because that, that
0: <laughs> that's right don't forget that second dose um, but you know we also talked on our last podcast about the currently known risks and side effects, and I think that's important because there is still a great deal of hesitancy out there about this vaccine and and taking it without knowing what are the long-term side effects going to be and and those continued unanswered questions but to to date what they've seen so far the primary side effects are soreness at the injection site fatigue headache muscle pains fever that type of thing which all to me is but we're
1: not talking about fever like i'm laid up in bed for two weeks can't with muscle aches like you have Full on flu we're talking mm-hmm. about minor muscle aches and minor chills
0: these are mild symptoms right um, compared to those that had the placebo, so correct this isn't like they like recipients have gotten full blown covid and have had the severe reactions that we've seen, so it seems to be incredibly effective um, and not only reducing your risk of covid but also um you know death and hospitalization so
1: i mean this is all around a game changer but it's not a game changer if people don't get it
0: that's right absolutely so hopefully you know as we move down this path of getting vaccine we're not going to see as much as many folks being concerned about taking it and really having you know the faith and um believing what we've been told and what all the data has shown to date.
1: But again, this gets us back to our, you know, what we originally were talking about in messaging and that it sure would be nice to have the doctors at the CDC and other places at the FDA doing, you know, press conferences, talking about these symptoms and talking about how the vaccine is going to be distributed and talking uh, about uh, everything that has been done to make sure – This vaccine is safe to take for your parents, your children, yourself. Um, And so we're not seeing that.
0: Yeah, the echo chamber isn't there right now, which is, I think, a hugely missed opportunity. Um, And hopefully one that will actually be occurring here in the weeks and months ahead. So as far as, you know, next steps, we really are looking to Operation Warp Speed to show us what the plans are to actually, once we have the vaccine approved, get those into individuals' hands, or really rather into their arms, if you will. And at this point, it sounds like, or I hope, we'll have more information. There's actually a press conference scheduled for later today at 2 p.m., so maybe we'll know more after that. Um, But um, we are going to be looking to states to actually – I think end up being the leaders in this.
1: But as of right now, we're we're not the first country in the world to have a vaccine being distributed, right?
0: No, that's that's right. Um actually the UK became the first nation to authorize the Pfizer vaccine to be approved and used in their country. They um approved it last week on December 2nd, and today, December 8th, um they actually had their first Citizens receive the vaccine, which is pretty remarkable. I think the first person that received it was a 90 year old woman named Margaret Keenan. Apparently, her her birthday is next week, and she said it was the best birthday present she could have gotten.
1: <laughs> that's great. And the second guy, his name was William Shakespeare, right? It was something, that's right? <laughs> well, good for them. That's great.
0: So, but that's amazing, and I think shows what maybe what we can expect here, which is the fact that they had the vaccine approved and then within a week they were actually administering it to people across the country. So, um, as far as the UK goes, their, their plans look somewhat similar to us as far as the prioritization of vaccine. Um, they've ordered 40 million doses of the vaccine as well, but are only, um, expecting about 800,000 shots to be available in this first wave that began today. And, um, you know, they have ordered more for first of the year, but they'll be um, focusing their efforts on ad- administering the vaccine to health care workers who are at the highest risk of serious illness, uh, as well as people over 80 after they uh, finish vaccinating those, um, who are, those who are residents of long-term care facilities.
1: Right. So, I mean, so how is this going to work in the U.S.? I mean, you briefly mentioned just a minute ago about Operation Warp Speed and 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 then giving it to the states. So what does what does that look like? Do we know?
0: So I think there are still some unanswered questions, but it sounds like it, at least as far as my understanding goes at this point, that Operation Warp Speed has a plan to get vaccine distributed to all 50 states and then after that it sounds like it's up to the states to determine how that vaccine actually gets distributed and allocated to the various hospitals or other healthcare providers across the state
1: so the feds let me let me see if i have this right the federal government is basically just going to drop off a couple million doses of vaccine on the back porch of every state and say have at it, Hoss.
0: Hopefully it will. It's it's more planned than that. but um, But we haven't seen as much information come to light just yet. And it sounds like so far the approach that's being taken is it's one national strategy to get vaccine to the states and then 50 separate plans to... Get it from the state level to the actual individuals that uh, have been prioritized for vaccine.
1: Yeah, I mean we we've seen a lot of that national strategy of the feds will throw remdesivir at the states and figure it out. The feds will throw PPE at the states and they can figure it out. They'll not make a recommendation on shutting things down or leaving things open. The states can figure it out. Um, I think we can say that that hasn't really worked out the best. Um, Hopefully, uh, you know, a better national strategy will be put in place here soon. Um, You know, I will say uh, as we wrap things up here, I I think this is probably potentially a good future episode of uh, uh, another podcast for us as we get a little more information on exactly how the vaccine will be distributed at the state level. And I'm sure it's going to be different across different states, but as we get more information, we'll certainly let our listeners know in a future podcast. Well, I think that's all that we have time for today. Remember to stay classy, stay healthy, America.